Just like the first time I came here, isn't it? We were talking about automobile insurance. Only you were thinking about murder. I was thinking about that anklet. And what are you thinking about now? I'm all through thinking, baby. I just came to say goodbye. Goodbye? Where are you going? You're the one that's going, baby, not me. I'm getting off the trolley car right at this corner. Suppose you stop being fancy. Let's have it, whatever it is. All right, I'll tell you. A friend of mine's got a funny theory. He says when two people commit a murder, it's sort of like they're riding on a trolley car together. One can't get off without the other. They're stuck with each other. And they have to go on riding together clear to the end of the line. And the last stop is a cemetery. Maybe he's got something there. You bet he has. Welcome to part two of our double indemnity episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect in their exclusive patron feed. We also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. So Alex, first of all, we're going to start with something that uh, already was announced in the previous episode, and but it needs to be uh, underlined, underscored here. And that is mm. that the bonus episode uh, this month on the Patreon channel is on the movie One Cut of the Dead, as demanded by patron Ryan. And he said, please go in as blind as possible. And now having watched One Cut of the Dead, I uh, have to double, triple, quadruple that warning. <laughs> Alex, go in as blind as Don't even read the blurb, if possible. Okay. It's on Shutter. It's a Shutter exclusive. It's a it's a zombie movie. That's what I'm going to tell you. That's all you, that that's all the poster tells you. So, those of you patrons who have seen One Cut of the Dead will be talking about it uh, on the Patreon channel. If you haven't seen it, I will reinforce Ryan's warning for you to watch it without knowing anything. It's a really short movie by today's standards, like 90 minutes, I think. And then you you get to hear Alex and I's reactions to it. Uh, that's something that every patron gets because that's part of our our one dollar tier, the Travolties. Ground floor, you get access to our bonus episodes. You also get access to all our, all the stuff that doesn't make it into our episodes. Uh, anything that we cut out that doesn't make it to the main feed goes to the cutting room floor segments, and those are also available to the dollar tier patrons. Now, if you wanna kick things up a notch give us a little more money and get a little more content, then you move up to the Widonis tier uh, and beyond. Uh, you're going to get our pre-recording notes. You're going to get our QVRs. Alex dropped a, a QVR on the movie Renfield last month. This month, we're going to knock out, finally, the dual QVRs for Martin, a George Romero movie, and Bones and All, a Luca Guaragino movie. We're going to be the two of us talking about them on video. I got some heat for my Renfield review. You did? Yeah, Reed really? was very unhappy. Our friend Reed, he was not pleased that I gave it a favorable review. I saw his letterbox <laughs> review, and it was a half star. And he said, if this is what we're going to get, movies should die. I thought it was all right. You know what? You can't please everybody. And and Reed has some really bad takes. I know he doesn't like Baby Driver. <laughs> well, Baby Driver's trash, <laughs> so... <laughs> All right, and then, of course, we also have Contreras After Hours. That's the spin-off show where we tell you about other things that we're watching, that we're reading, that we're listening to, that we're doing. Uh, Alex, what are you bringing to Contreras After Hours this time? Yeah, I just returned from my trip to Chicago. I'm still exhausted. My body's, like, rejecting what the how I spent <laughs> three days of my life. But Chicago ruled, man. 
Uh, it was a really fun trip. I'm really glad I got to do it. And uh, I'll be detailing and recapping my adventures there with uh, some of our friends. So I did learn. Um, I thought the Holbert thing was a coincidence. We have our friend Joe Holbert. From uh, Late Night Grin. Yes. Yeah. And Stephen Holbert, who's one of our patrons and just recently demanded uh, the commitment. The That's his brother. Uh, I just oh. chalked it up to coincidence or whatever. And I was talking to Joe and his brother, Sean, was there, too. And we were kind of talking about the podcast and stuff. And the commitments came up like, yeah, that's if Joe was here, I, I would be doing an impression of his his accent because I kept doing that the whole weekend. And he, he was giving me shit. He was saying every time I did an English accent, I was from like a different part of the country. He's like, you need to pick a <laughs> dialect and stick with it. Anyway, said his brother was like, yeah, I don't think they liked it. And based on the, the first half and Joe's like, that's the gimmick, dude. You just have to listen to <laughs> the rest of it. So that was fun. But Joe and I actually got away for uh, a little bit on Sunday afternoon before the wrestling event we went to. And he and I went to the Gene Siskel Film Institute to watch. Uh, 1963's Promises, Promises, starring Jane Mansfield. Uh, quite an insane movie. So uh, <laughs> there will be some actual movie talk in this as well as just general recap of my recent adventures and hanging with the lads. It was it was a great time. Chicago's awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing your tales of Chicago. I That's a city I'm not familiar with. I it's It's on my list of places I want to visit. For my side of the after hours, Alex, I'm going to stick to the classics in the sense that uh, I found out, I don't know if this is a new edition or I just hadn't really bothered to search, but uh, Max, previously HBO Max, it's a lot of uh, old Hitchcock movies that uh, I hadn't seen available to stream anywhere else. And as you and our listeners may remember, ever since we did the Psycho episode, I've been slowly chipping away at uh, Alfred Hitchcock's filmography. Whenever I see something that's available to stream uh, of his, I'll just I'll try to check it out. So I went ahead. I uh, got two more old Hitchcock movies under my belt: uh, The Thirty Nine Steps from 1935 and The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934. Uh, and then they also have this movie called The Girl. I think it was a it wasn't a theatrical. I think that was one of those uh, direct to HBO movies. Uh, from 2012, uh, starring Toby Jones as Alfred Hitchcock. So it's not the the big Hollywood Hitchcock biopic with Anthony Hopkins as Hitchcock. This is uh, Toby Jones as Hitchcock, and Sienna Miller plays uh, Tippi Hedren from you know the okay. actress from The Birds. Mm-hmm. And I think that she is the girl. And I I from what I understand, the movie is about the about the relationship. So I haven't seen it yet. I have it. It's like right next. Uh, on my queue, so I should I should be done with it by the time that uh, we record the after hours. The so, thirty nine steps I actually have on Criterion. Nice. Do you have you seen it? Oh yeah, yeah. I watched it uh, within the past year. It's a Criterion that I got for two bucks because someone just donated it to Goodwill. And my rule of thumb is, if I see any Criterion movie for two dollars, <laughs> I will buy it. <laughs> and I, I, I really enjoyed it, so I'll be interested to compare thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Let's and. I mean, of course you would enjoy it because these two movies, uh, uh, 39 Steps and The Man Who Knew Too Much, they're under 90 minutes. I think mm-hmm. that uh, Man Who Knew Too Much is like 120. So, yeah, good stuff. We'll, we'll be talking about that on the After Hours. So if any of that sounds interesting, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Prime. That's where you can look at our tiers and decide if you would like to join the Contrarian Supplements. For $1, $3, $5, and $10, make your pledges or respective tiers. One dollar. Come on. 
take a look around and see if it's something you want to continue. We're confident that you will uh, once you once you land there. Our Lindsay Lohan <laughs> career life retrospective, uh, Roxena journey that we took, um, which for whatever reason has been coming back up. I've seen a few times in my Twitter circles because uh, John <laughs> Cena questionably returned to the WWE in the face of the writer's strike right now. And uh, because of his return, people have been talking about as if they didn't know it already. Did you know he was in the most (laughs) bought match, the most bought pay-per-view in wrestling history? (laughs) Anyone who's had our patron knows because there's fucking 15 hours that go into painstaking (laughs) detail about it. And same thing with Lohan. I'm proud of the work we did there on that. And uh, these upcoming projects, when we hit those uh, those numbers, those thresholds, uh, I think those will be really fun as well. Um, to all of our current patrons, God bless y'all. We love you dearly. And, uh, you know, I, now I'm learning more about these people personally, which is great. And our patron who uh, demanded this film, I, I, I know on a personal level as well. So uh, it's a fun thing that we get to do. And I'm happy that we have a community that enjoys the work that we do. So thank you to all our patrons. And in closing... Uh, to any potential prospects or people curious, I will just let you know that send your application our way and uh, we'll promptly review it and approve it. And you'll be granted everything. Back to the original Blue is the Warmest Color episode. So let's keep it going. Let's keep it going all the way back to the to the 40s. Let's untangle this, this noir web, Alex. Let's go to real talk. Come on, baby, I just got into this thing because I happen to know a little something about insurance, didn't I? I was a sucker. I'd have been brushed off just as soon as you got your hands on the money. Nobody wanted to brush you off. Save it, I'm telling this. Well, before we get into it, uh, our patron, John Keating, Bolo, my buddy, uh, good dude, bought me lunch in Los Angeles, and just, uh, again, <laughs> I think he would consider me one, but I definitely consider him a friend of mine and someone I met through the ridiculous world of the internet slash professional wrestling uh but obviously uh, a dignitary in his own right of the, the hollywood scene concessionaires must die we've plugged on here several times before a film that he uh, wrote and stars in and um you know a lot of work and continues to do work to help out with uh auditions and share his experiences and help train people for, you know, the potential steps of acting. And, but on top of that, he, uh, he and I almost universally agree on matters of professional wrestling and that's, what's most important in life. And (laughs) yeah, he's, he's just a good dude and he's been pretty supportive of this podcast ever since I met him. Uh, but I get the impression. I no no sense in lying. I know he fucking loves this movie. So, uh, he threw this at us and he said dance and we said absolutely so do we have any any audio to to preface before we get into real talk here how uh john bolo keating feels about double indemnity yes he 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 said this uh (laughs) i'm also going to read to you the what he said when he sent the message he said it's me rambling like a love-starved teen for a minute about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but before we play that, let me read you some negative quotes because this movie is not 100%. Oh, there that's right. There were a right. couple of rotten quotes there. Get the uh, negativity the out of the way. Yeah. And then and then just to spice things up, I also pulled up a couple of things from Letterboxd. Double indemnity. Not for everybody. Go figure. First, 
Thomas Archer from the Montreal Gazette says, Double Indemnity, for all its chills and thrills, never really takes on lifelike features. Is, is this not real life? Is that what he's complaining about? That this sort of thing doesn't happen in, in the real world? Does he also understand why fucking movies were made in 1944? <laughs> also, does he not know that this was based on a true story, apparently? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next, James Agee from The Nation says the picture never fully takes hold of his opportunities, such as they are, perhaps because those opportunities are appreciated chiefly as surfaces and atmospheres and as very tellable trash. I don't even know what this guy's talking about. Yeah. Like that literally, the, all of that he just said does not describe the same movie I watched a few hours ago. I guess it goes to prove that the pretensionist goes both ways. <laughs> yes, that review has no direction at all, no aim. It's just like firing a gun in the dark right now that every bullet's a different $3 word that I found. He wanted to use the, the turn of phrase, tellable trash. Yes. Whatever that may mean. <laughs> uh, but these two guys are alone in, in, in the sea of fresh tomatoes. So then I went to Letterboxd and I did a search for for low rankings, for low ratings of Double Indemnity. Came up with a Ella DW who watched this January 19, 2022, gave it half a star and says, sucked. Couldn't understand what they were saying. Not even that hot. One out of 10. It has five likes. Do you have uh, her like profile page, what her favorite movies are? Look at her profile. First of her, her favorite movies, Dunkirk. <laughs> what? Yeah, Dunkirk, Anna Karenina, Mudbound, and Dirty Dancing. So, you know, a broad spectrum. But like that, <laughs> can't understand what they're saying. I just watched Dunkirk and Tom Hardy, and not in a Bane way. It's like the audio is like intentionally <laughs> choppy, like what Tom Hardy's saying. And I mean, that movie is not dialogue heavy at all. So uh, th that's a very perplexing Unless they're doing a bit of some sort. That's very fascinating. I thought that maybe that was going on. Uh, but look, next, Clarky Dog. I watched Double Indemnity November 17, 2022. Gave it one and a half stars. And says, some of the sentences were so hard to make out, LOL. Like, they're speaking perfect English, but it's just so hard to understand. Mm. <laughs> Alex, have we just gotten dumber as a nation? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's categorical. I mean, that's very provable if you follow the, the trends of the past decade. Like, no offense, but this is not, I mean, it's not Shakespeare. It's it's not like like you really have to pay attention to to really make out what the, what, it's also the specific. Not, it's not freaks. It's not a damaged film that like has a hard time like the audio cuts in and out of either. Just turn it up. By the way, Clarky Dog's favorites, number one, Interstellar. <laughs> number two. <laughs> number two, Prisoners. Number three, Silver Linings Playbook. There it is. Mm. And number four, Leon. I mean, these people, that just sounds so like pretentious, but I mean, they watch movies. They watch some good movies. My, my immediate thought is like there's some degraded copy that's like on a streaming platform <laughs> or something that... Because I, I don't, it was quiet, but, you know, some movies that have been remastered, the audio tracks have been kind of lowered. And that's uh -huh. the thing about Nolan's movies, too. When you watch them at home, 
because the way he does his sound mixing, the dialogue's so quiet, but the action's so loud. So, like, you know, you have to have it turned up to 60, and then as soon as something happens, the house shakes. <laughs> so, yes. that's, as soon as the bomb goes off. The only logical thing I can think is, oh, obviously, people are fucking stupid, but then, too, um, <laughs> there, there must have been, like, a degraded quality print that got, like, put on some streaming platform or something that the audio was shit. Because I didn't have a problem with it. Like I said, the audio levels were kind of lower, but that that happens sometimes in remastering. So I just turned it up a little bit. And they have these things called subtitles, too, that you can put on to kind of have as a backup plan. Well, as as if I didn't sound condescending enough, I can vouch for the quality of the Criterion audio. It was wonderful. God bless. (laughs) I think now's as good a time to to find out what uh, Bolo thought of this. All right, here we go. Hi, this is John M. Keating, and I'm talking about Double Indemnity. This movie is one of my favorite movies of all time. And in fact, as a big fan of noir movies, this is a movie I would point anyone to that kind of wants to understand what noir is about and what's a good movie to start off in that genre with. This is just a perfect movie. Barbara Stanwyck is gorgeous and evil and uh, and cold and calculating. And Fred McMurray, if you've only known him from the Flubber movies, uh, he's a whole different uh, actor back in the day. And then, of course, you get Edward G. Robinson, uh, who is one of the best character actors ever. Over the years, he's become one of my favorite actors because he can do it all. He can do comedy. He can do drama. He can do, you know, be scary and, and crime films. He's fantastic. And he is really the heart of this whole movie. Um, I really, I can't recommend it highly enough. Do you think, Alex, that I would maybe like noir more if somebody had introduced me to the genre <laughs> via Double Indemnity? I think it's possible. I think it's certainly possible. I think so too. I think that uh, every what time I watch it, it uh, what killed the new was it Brick? Was that the one that you were like, "Fuck this"? I think that was part of it. I, I, <laughs> I, I I'm trying to remember what was what I watched first. I know I watched uh, the Maltese Falcon, and I was mm-hmm. bored out of my mind. Now I sound like those kids in Letterbox. I didn't go on, re- you know, write a review like, "Oh, this movie sucks," but <laughs> I was just remember thinking, "Oh man, that sucks." Like this is, I get why this was good back in the day, but this is just not grabbing me. And uh, it wasn't the performances; it was just the the story construction and like the the noir tropes and you know, like what well, we've talked about and what you were referencing in first corner. You know, like a lot of, uh, "Oh, this is just really dumb for the sake of the plot." And I know uh, Maltese Falcon, yeah, Brick, uh, probably a couple others. You need to see Night in the City. I'd, I'd bring that up because when I saw John in uh, L.A. a few months ago, we actually spent a period of time talking about that movie. And that's a that's a great noir. That's one of mine on my Criterion shelf. So get the that's the one that got remade with uh, De Niro, right? Yes, which I didn't know until we found that out in real time. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll add it to the list. That's that's one of those. Hell, I might even see the Criterion at the next sale and grab it. Uh, but yeah, I was thinking about it just because the it definitely does set the tone. Maybe not so much now because I I think that I've I've enjoyed enough noirs to where at the very least it's a fifty fifty divide. Uh, but it's still it's a genre that I walk into 
with trepidation because I know that there are things about it that generally don't work for me or rub me the wrong way. And uh, Double Indemnity doesn't have any of those things, even though it has a lot of the, the you know, the tropes of the genre. And maybe, you know, it's like you watch Double Indemnity. I, I think that by now it's very clear <laughs> that you and I really like this movie. So uh, do watch something like Double Indemnity and it definitely puts a star on the genre to where you're excited to see what happens next. And even if what happens next, what you watch next is not good, you still have that reference of like, well, but I watched Double Indemnity and it was really great. So I'm just looking for the next one. Where it's like, if your primary experience, your fir- your first experiences are Brick and the Maltese Falcon, in my experience, right? Uh, then you approach everything kind of with really low expectations and not ex- not thinking that it's going to work for you. So, And then you start recognizing those elements that you didn't like in Brick and the Maltese Falcon in those other movies. And you just go, of course, it's noir. <laughs> what was I expecting? <laughs> so, yeah, I-, I-, I think that I probably would have had an easier time uh, approaching this genre if I had a really good starter like this one. Um, I think that you're you're more open-minded when it comes to it, or you, you were more open-minded much sooner than me. Do you agree, I guess, basically with what John's saying, that this is, this is like a good entry point, like this is kind of like the perfect way to introduce somebody to, to this type of story? Oh, absolutely. And I have found, too, that that's kind of an interesting... Um differentiation between you and I is and I'm not saying one's right versus the other um your thing is more genres of like oh uh, this one's a bit harder for me to get into and mine is filmmakers like I know you have some too but mm-hmm. you know that's like I get hung up huge some on that sometimes just like nope not gonna do it can't do it won't do it <laughs> uh, David or Russell absolutely not I'll I'll be in the car um yeah this is great the i mean the lighting and uh just the whole the setting and the premise and you know the side characters that we have along the way this is like a perfect entry point it feels cliched because of you know what movies have done with the idea of the noir genre and also you know, movies from the forties and you know, these plot lines and ideas. I, Wayne's World Two, I was talking about, but like, this is excellent. If you have the aptitude for it, and like, it's something you're truly interested in. This is the one to sit down and watch. In terms of like, what what is film noir? I think it's just it's kind of a harder sell. Like, honestly, if we weren't doing it for this, and I told you to watch it, it might be like a back burner one for you. Like, yeah, I'll get to it eventually. But I think it's just a, a tremendous jumping off point. And to, to be fair, also, I, I have watched a good amount of noir movies also that I found myself kind of bored during and just or kind of rolling my eyes sounds a bit dramatic or a bit um, ill-intended. But, you know, some I have seen Terminator 2. You got to work hard to keep my attention. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> On repeat. But this, uh, I I found myself like engaged in the whole time to the point of like the being anxious and like the intensity and um, some of the scenes of tension and it really really resounded with me. Yep, yeah, it's a, it's it's a really good story. I I think that 
I wouldn't have put it in the back burner. I mean, obviously, this was not a priority for me to watch, but just not necessarily because of the movie or or because it was a noir, it's just because, you know, I, there's so much that I wanted to watch. But the fact that it was Billy Wilder and I already liked, uh, you know, I love Sunset Boulevard. So that would have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, I, that, that. that that made it like a, a highlight that I knew I, I was going to get to sooner or later. And I've been saying, you know, I need to watch more Wilder movies forever. So I was glad that we had this this chance. Uh, I think that it's not a detective story. I kind of mentioned it in Contreras Corner. And that, uh, that was kind of like the break from what I usually expect. When you tell me noir, I automatically assume that there's going to be somebody investigating a crime. And that is something that happens here. I mean, not a crime, a mystery, right? And there's mm-hmm. there's no mystery here other than how how is everything going to go bad? But that's not, you know, a real... There's no, like, MacGuffin that people are trying to, like, pursue or anything. And uh, that's not, like, a positive or negative, but it was just, like, the one thing where I was like, oh, we're missing that element because you know we have the voiceover and we have the the way that it's photographed and and we have the uh, the femme fatale and we have the just the quippy dialogue from you know that's what I think of when I think of like uh, the noir in the forties the you know like Humphrey Bogart giving these lines flirt- having these flirtations with different women where he's just very very quippy and sometimes you know it just you arrange it together in a way that works better than others and i think that the the performances really go a long way you know it's not just the dialogue is good but that you have three actors the three main actors that really knock it out of the park mm-hmm. and delivering it so that definitely i think that i could have watched probably any story you know, it didn't have to be within the trappings of of the crime genre, and I still would have been so entertained if you just had Fred McMurray, Barbara Sandwick, and Edward G. Robinson. Uh, if you had them just being part of it, you know, I think that at this point, based on the talent that they display here, I would have been like all in, uh, no matter what. So the fact that it just happens to be a, a really interesting crime, uh, that that's just you know the cherry on top. So if I wanted to be just combative, just difficult, I would say like, oh, it's not really that I like the noir. It's just that I like the movie with really good actors <laughs> and really, really crackling dialogue, as they like that, to say. That's a that's a very good Julio line. I'm not saying that. that, that I think it's a good noir, too. <laughs> you mean you want him to have the policy without him knowing it? And that means without the insurance company knowing that he doesn't know it. That's a setup, isn't it? Is there anything wrong with it? No, I think it's lovely. Okay, so the, the other thing is, uh, so Frank McMurray, right? Uh, Walter Neff, he's a weasel. He's not a bitch. How when you're watching the movie, are you rooting for him? Are you feeling bad for him, or are you just rubbing your hands, waiting for everything to fall apart? To me, and this may be completely off base with other people's interpretations, but I've always thought part of noir is that you don't, there's not really anyone you're rooting for. It's a fly on the wall. You watch a movie like, uh, you know, it's, you're kind of watching all this unfold and see these characters make these bad decisions that are going to cost them down the road. Um, but I think that you, you can still, like, uh, the Maltese Falcon, right? Or even like the Big Sleep. Like, you can tell Bogart is a very flawed man and he has, uh, in a way, what happens to him, it's always like, oh, well, he had it coming. But you're rooting for him. Or at least I remember I was, right? I was like, I hope he, you know, 
gets a girl or at least doesn't get killed mm. or whatever. And in this case, at least watching Double Indemnity, maybe it's because of the way it's constructed, right? You know that he's at the end of his rope at the beginning of the movie, so you know where it's where it's coming. But I was hoping that he would not necessarily get away with it, but at least prevail somehow, which is weird because he is a criminal from the beginning and he's doing some horrible things. But I don't know if it's just that the charm of the of the performance that uh, he's just so good at you know being funny and 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 kind of like appealing and so that makes me want to <laughs> want him to win somehow or if it's just that the the plot is so ingenious that I kind of want him to succeed just because kudos to them for coming up with that shit. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I I wasn't like just watching it waiting for the train wreck to to speed up i was actually kind of invested on on him coming ahead not necessarily her but, and i guess because of the conventions of 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 the genre i i just knew that she was bad news from the beginning so i didn't want her to win yes i definitely didn't want her to get away with it in the end i didn't, I didn't necessarily want him to kill her but um my biggest investment was the relationship between keys and neff yes. and so like that so to see how that was going to play out at the end when he found out like when it showed that he was standing there and you know how long were you standing there long enough to hear enough or whatever he says in response and to see the movie like ends with them together and it, the last line is well i loved you too or whatever that mm-hmm. he says to him and it's excellent and i to me that was the most interesting relationship in it and that was the thing i was most invested in seeing and wanting it to succeed because i love a good you know bros being bros dudes rock type thing (laughs) but i also i love that he didn't compromise his morals and let him go because he was his friend he he knew he did wrong and you know this you made your bed to lay in it i did not catch on to the importance of that relationship until the very end like i I enjoyed it i appreciated it but it it wasn't until (laughs) fred mcmurray is just dying on the floor and uh, and the guy lights a cigarette, and they have that exchange where it's just clear that oh yeah that's right they they were really good friends, or at least they they thought of each other very they never said it out loud really but you know they they had a respect for each other and in, in a way an admiration and that final shot that's when it hit me I was like oh that's the real love story it was between these two guys and that's a real betrayal and that's a real heartbreak and no it was about capitalism Julio. That's true. Yeah. Well, you know, it can be about more than one thing, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I had the benefit of watching this movie twice. I've said it before on the show. Like when it's a movie that I haven't seen before and I know it's well regarded, I try to to go twice, like watch it once on my own, not taking notes or anything, and then go again for the for the contrarian's part in that. So I did it twice, and the second time I watched it knowing how it ended, then I was able to really zone in those scenes between the two of them. And uh, especially the scene where he offers him the job, where he offers the promotion that comes with the pay cut. I mean, it's just so, it's just good to begin with. But then once you know that how doomed this relationship is, you know, that you know that Keyes really thinks highly of him. That's why he's offering him the job, because he thinks that he's smart. I mean, he may not say it. In fact, he says the opposite. He tells him, I didn't offer you the job because you're smart. I offer you because you're less dumb, or I thought you were less dumb. But really, at the very end, I mean, that's you can tell, like that's that's the the real disappointment of knowing that, man, this guy that I held in high regard 
turn out to be just a criminal and a lousy criminal. A criminal that doesn't even get away with it. So it's very rewarding to watch it uh, a second time and just really be able to soak in the not just the chemistry between them because you get that the first time around but just the the fact that that's the real tragedy like the fact that him that his relationship with with uh phyllis doesn't work out i mean that's not it, it shouldn't have you know that's it's probably yeah. yeah if i wanted to be nitpicky i would say that that is my my problem with the movie but that is a problem that i have with a lot of movies of that era which is that i just don't buy the relationship right it's like they're talking about loving each other and they just met and it's like well it makes sense on her side because she's just using him but on his side i mean i guess because he's just infatuated but i i kind of feel like back in the day in some movies today still uh, the the love platitudes get thrown around very easily and and i just feel yeah. like you need more build up to that so you know when they they get together on the when she comes to his apartment and they kind of have a back and forth and then they finally give in and he grabs her and kisses her and he goes I love you baby and I was like really <laughs> <laughs> but I understand right it's like well he has to say that because in the confines of the movie in the forties it was like like today he wouldn't say that he would just like grab her and then they would have sex on the couch or something yeah but. You had to you had to work with <laughs> within the limits of the censorship back then, and so he has to say that, and it brings faults. Whether, uh, whereas on the other hand, his relationship with Keith always rings true, and even more so once you know how it all ends. So no, I agree. It's it's well, it's what uh what John just said on its clip, right? Like that that character is the heart of the movie. The, Mm-hmm. The character of Keys, and he's a the moral center, and and also he gets a couple of like really good standout monologues. I was uh, I was a big fan. Would you say that that guy's the MVP? I know you you threw that out on Contrarian's Corner, but I didn't know if you were serious. Yeah, Edward G. Robinson's my MVP for this one. Really, just towering above uh, Stanwick and McMurray. I mean, ever yeah, they're great, but he just takes it to another level. And he helps nail home like the importance of things that are happening. And that scene where he just completely Norton, I think it was that guy's name, when he just mm-hmm. destroys him. That was awesome. That was probably my favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> yeah, so like next time I'll rent a tuxedo. <laughs> I did find myself thinking about too, just the noir aspect. I, I think I've brought this up before, but any chance I get, I will do so. The SNL skit from several years ago when Ryan Gosling hosted. Uh, and he was a fugitive on the run with his love, uh, Henrietta, who was a, a hen that A.D. Bryant played. Do you remember me telling you about this? No. <laughs> a hen? Like a chicken? Yes. Yeah. And like, it's, I think, I think it's black and white. And uh, <laughs> he's on the run from the cops and he, he, like it, he keeps telling her like, Oh, we're we're gonna get out of here, Henrietta. And they got those egg warmers on the plane, and the next stop is Barcelona. And uh she like wises up because she's talking to cops. She's like, Do airplanes have egg warmers? <laughs> it's just it's so stupid. And then she's gonna go down for the crimes he's committed, but he like shows back up and takes the rep because I think like he killed a cop or something. 
And so he's like, no, wait for me, Henrietta. And then it says something like, you know, 15 years later and it's him getting out of prison and she's there, but she's still the hen, but she has like gray hair now and she has the bonnet and the black glasses on. And he walks up and he's like, where to beautiful. And she says, Barcelona. <laughs> It'll just be you, me, sangria and paella from here on out. And corn, right? Oh, sure. Little glistening loose kernels of corn like yellow diamonds as far as the eye can see. I can't believe I'm trading a barn for Barcelona. I'm sure we'll drop an audio clip from that, but (laughs) if you haven't seen that, it's it's fantastic. And the way it's presented is very like we talk about where cliches and, you know, uh, parodies of shit like this have thrived. And it's definitely an example of that. But um, yeah, I'm sorry that that came to mind. What uh, where are we going to go next? I was just going to say that as much as I love uh, Robinson's performance, I think I'm going to give it to McMurray. And I know I, I, I kind of get the feeling really that good. this is, yeah, I get the feeling that this is more of a, when people talk about it, and I'm sure they love all of it, but I feel like Barbara Stanwyck's the one that gets singled out, and, and rightly so, because she's great, but walking away from it, I'm just more in awe of what he does, uh, because... I guess because it just looks like it's something that's really hard <laughs> to deliver those lines and and just keep that attitude. And I don't know about you, but I thought that he was really cool. <laughs> there was something oh, yeah. about just the way he carried himself and the way that he just delivered those those quips and just wouldn't miss a beat when he was having the back and forth with Barbara Sandwick. And it's also an older movie, so there's much, much longer pieces of dialogue that they have to memorize and deliver. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like much yeah. longer shots and things that hang, and it's um, it's just a different beast altogether. And so to pull it off like he does, you, you're right. It's like, damn, dog, save some for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, he has he has that smile, but then the way that he has these kind of like micro reactions whenever, man, every time that he is interacting with somebody either keys or norton you know, i guess both of them in that big scene but where you can see that in his mind he's on the outside he's trying to remain cool but you can tell that inside he's like oh god did i just get found out right yeah. and then whenever it's like a close call you can also see the relief but he's still worried and i mean that is that takes talent, you know, and I don't think everybody can do it. And so I was watching it and again on rewatch, especially because then you know how the story is playing out. So you can pay attention to him in the, in the big scene. So when Keyes is having his big monologue and he's like tearing Norton apart, you can see Frank McMurray in the background and he's, he's not just standing there. I mean, he's reacting to the whole thing. <laughs> it's, it's really good. So I'm, I want to watch more Frank McMurray movies. What do you think I was anyway? The guy that walks into a good-looking dame's front parlor and says, good afternoon, I sell accident insurance on husbands. You got one that's been around too long, one you'd like to turn into a little hard cash? Just give me a smile and I'll help you collect? <laughs> Boy, what a dope you must think I am. Uh, looking to close here, though, we Double Indemnity was nominated for seven Academy Awards at the 17th Annual Academy Awards. Best Picture, lost to Going My Way. Best Director, uh, lost to Leo McCary for Going My Way. Best Actress, lost to Ingrid Bergman for Gaslight. Best screenplay, uh, lost to Frank Butler and Frank Cavett for Going My Way. Best cinematography, lost to Laura. 
Best Music lost to Since You Went Away, and Best Sound lost to Wilson. So definitely was a contender. Um, I was looking into it for my own sake. No, Billy Crystal did not host in 1945. <laughs> it's hosted by John Cromwell and Bob Hope. He watched them, probably. Oh, yeah. Anyway, as we look to close here, we thank John for his wonderful patronage and this pick here, and we look to our guiding light here, Roger Ebert, his review of Double Indemnity from December 20th of 1998, a four-star review. He starts with, No, I never loved you, Walter. Not you or anybody else. I'm rotten to the heart. I used you just as you said. That's all you ever meant to me until a minute ago when I couldn't fire that second shot. Is she kidding? Walter thinks so. Sorry, baby, I'm not buying it. The puzzle of Billy Wilder's double indemnity, the enigma that keeps it new, is what these two people really think of one another. They strut through the routine of the noir murder plot with the tough talk and the cold sex play, but they never seem to really like each other all that much, and they don't seem that crazy about the money either. What are they after? (laughs) Walter is Walter Neff, two Fs, like in Philadelphia. (laughs) He's an insurance salesman, successful but bored. The woman is Phyllis Diedrichson, a lazy blonde who met her current husband by nursing his wife to death, according to her stepdaughter. Neff pays a call one day to renew her husband's automobile insurance. He's not at home, but she is, wrapped in a towel and standing atop of the staircase. I wanted to see her again, Neff tells us, close and without the silly staircase between us. The story was written in the 1930s by James N. McCain, the hard-boiled author of The Postman Always Rings Twice. A screenplay kicked around Hollywood, but the Hayes office nixed for hardening audience attitudes towards crime. By 1944, Wilder thought he could film it. Kane wasn't available, so he hired Raymond Chandler to do the screenplay. Chandler, whose novel The Big Sleep Wilder loved, turned up drunk, smoked a smelly pipe, didn't know anything about screenplay construction, but could put a nasty spin on dialogue. Together, they eliminated Kane's complicated endgame and deepened the relationship between Neff and Keyes, the claims manager at the insurance company. They told the movie in a flashback narrated by Neff, who arrives at the office late at night, dripping blood and recites into a dictaphone. The voiceover worked so well that Wilder used it again in Sunset Boulevard, which was narrated by a character who's already dead by the first time he speaks. No problem. Double Indemnity originally ended with Neff in the gas chamber, but that scene was cut because an earlier one turned out to be the perfect way to close the film. Oh, so there's the answer. He does survive the shot. (laughs) (laughs) To describe the story is to miss the nuances that makes it tantalizing. Phyllis wants Walter to sell her husband a $50,000 double indemnity policy and then arrange the husband's accidental death. Walter is willing, ostensibly because he's fallen under her sexual spell. On their third meeting, after a lot of aggressive wordplay, they agree to kill the husband and collect the money. I guess they also make love in 1944. (laughs) In 1944 movies, you can't be sure. But if they do, it's only the once. I disagree. I'm pretty sure they're having sex throughout the entire movie. Standing back from the film and what it expects us to think, I see them engage not in romance or theft, but in behavior. They're intoxicated by their personal styles. Styles learned in the movies and from radio and the detective magazines. Walter and Phyllis are pulp characters with little psychological depth, and that's the way Billy Wilder wants it. His best films are sardonic comedies, and this one 
Phyllis and Walter play a bad joke on themselves. More genuine emotion is centered elsewhere and involves Neff's fear of discovery and his feelings for keys. Edward G. Robinson plays the inspector of a nonconformist who loosens his tie, reclines on the office couch, smokes cheap cigars, and wants to make Neff his assistant. He's a father figure or more. He's also smart and eventually figures out that a crime was committed and exactly how it was committed. Does Key suspect Neff? You can't really say. He arranges situations in which Neff's guilt might be discovered, but they're part of his routine techniques. Perhaps only his subconscious, the little man who lives in my stomach, suspects Neff. The end of the film is curious. It's the beginning, too, so I'm not giving it away. Why does the wounded Neff go to the office and dictate a confession if he still presumably hopes to escape? Because he wants to be discovered by Keys? Neff tells him, you know why you couldn't figure this one out, Keys? I'll tell you because the guy you were looking for was too close, right across the desk from you. Keyes says, closer than that, Walter. And Neff says, I love you too. Neff has been lighting Keyes' smokes all during the movie, and now Keyes lights Neff's. You see why a gas chamber would have been superfluous. <laughs> that's Roger Ebert's take on this movie. And I thought that covered a lot of really good points. It does. I don't agree with that whole with, with some of it, but that's kind of like the beauty of reading a Roger Ebert review because it's very well thought out and you can enjoy it even when you don't agree with it. <laughs> I mean, I agree with a lot of it. I just, I, I think he's underselling the psychology of, uh, of Neff's character. Cause mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that makes him pop is just, it's that, I mean, all kidding aside, it's not just lust. I think that lust is part of it, but it's also the fact that, He's not a good dude, and he's been thinking about this. I mean, he says as much, right? He he says, "I was, you know, when you when you're in this business, you think about it. You can, you know the you know the ins and outs so well that you can't help yourself, and you start thinking, okay, but how would I do it if I were to do it? And then he sees an opportunity to actually test it out, and you know, a beautiful woman becomes the the final straw, like the excuse he has to." To be a bad guy. He's like, he's Walter White. You know, he's like, I'm going to do it. Nice. Not just for the money, but because it makes me feel alive. And, and you know, I think that he likes his job, but obviously there was something missing. And, and being part of this criminal activity did something for him. Of course, he definitely doesn't have what it takes to, to follow through. Right. She does. You know, she's like, fuck it. We're, we're going to the end of the line. And uh, when things get tough, he obviously doesn't have the the metal to to really commit to being a I was gonna say to be a criminal. He is a criminal anyway because he you know kills her. But uh, he definitely wants off the trolley, as he says. So I, I think it's funny because him and then there was that uh, Ebert and then there's that quote that I read I think on Trash Corner where they were talking about how there's no psychology in this in this story, and I think that there is. I think that on her side, on the side of Phyllis, uh, Barbara Stanwyck is meant to be more of a riddle because it's in the end it's not her story it's it's his and yeah i mean what do you think alex is she being genuine when she tells him that she loves him at the end i never thought that could happen to me sorry baby i'm not buying i'm not asking you to buy just hold me close i don't know that's what i kind of liked about it Mm -hmm. i don't know if i'll ever know yeah i agree it's like we're we're with him we're with his point of view so we'll never know she's been that's the big mystery she could have been playing him the entire time or maybe she she always had feelings for him and she was just hiding them 
or maybe like she says she just realized how strong her feelings were just at the very end but um my final point i can see you know when we do constraints corner there there's some points that are always easy to to make fun of especially with older movies uh when it comes to how society has changed how society how humanity has evolved and so now there's some things like in the 40s they were perfectly acceptable so people wouldn't bat an eye when they were seeing a movie and then in uh 2023 you see it and you point out and and you can choose to be just completely repelled by by it or you can just take it into context you know look at the bigger picture and be like oh well, that's how it was and uh, when i was flipping through those letterbox reviews there were some people that were just they just seemed appalled by the way that uh barbara stanwick's character was depicted here and it was it seemed like like blowing out of proportion how you know the movie for better or for worse is kind of like on his side on the side of the guy even though they're both criminals mm-hmm. and I believe that at least part of those, a fraction of those reviews are being genuine. They're not just like do, doing a bit, you know, they really feel, find that offensive or, you know, they really believe that it's negative. But I, and you know, who knows, maybe 10 years ago or something, I would have also been just put off by some of the, the social dynamics in, in, you know, in an old movie. But today I just watched it and I'm like, well, just that's how it was. And you can, I can look past it and just appreciate the rest of the story. Like if they, uh, if you saw it today, like if there was a movie made in twenty, you know, in, in the twenty first century, maybe I would raise an eyebrow and be like, eh, that, that that characterization is not quite right. But I found that I, I'm okay with, like the fact that you have two black people in this movie that show up for like you know a scene each. Like one is the guy that washes his car, the other one is the. Um, uh, the guy at the train that takes him to his seat or something, right? And it was like, that's not good in the sense that, oh, well, you know, if you were making the movie today, but back in, like, the 40s, it was like, well, that was, that's how it was. So when we were talking, we opened Real Talk talking about, like, things that a younger generation has problems like why they they reject all their movies and i think that some of them at least have a really hard time just making that leap to well that's how it was you know you can like decide to like completely shut it down because some of the things that went on back then are are things that we don't do anymore or that we have improved on now and or you can just understand that that's why it wasn't and appreciate the rest of the experience and that's hard. That's something that maybe you have a lot more trouble with when you're younger. And then once you get older, you're a little more open-minded and you can just understand that, you know, there are things that we're doing in movies today that might be seen as like being in poor taste or just being really uh, out of touch 10 years, 20 years from now. <laughs> that's just kind of like how it goes. So I think that that's another hurdle when you're talking about classic movies. They're, they were made so long ago that inherently they have some things that are just like at best have fallen out of style and at worst have become problematic so that's just something you know i don't think that double indemnity is one that 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 has a lot of them but the dynamic of of a noir protagonist and a femme fatale is something that could probably put off people in that sense yeah i I, you cut yourself off to a lot of potential art out there if you limit like your search criteria 
I mean, obviously the representation of minorities in this is severely lacking, but uh, I didn't really think Barbara Stanwyck's character was portrayed too menacingly at all. Really, she's she's smarter and she is crazy, as is established. <laughs> it's it's not like women, am I right? It's definitely I, I never <laughs> at any point got that tone. But yeah, I I understand what you're saying. All right, well. It's, it's that time, Alex. Uh, what's your grade for double indemnity? This gets an A. Not an A+, plus, but an A. A plus is I have to reserve for you know, the creme de la creme, but this is a fine piece of business. Had a fantastic time watching it and definitely one to be in consideration uh, when the Criterion sales strikes up again next year. So an A for me. Great pick, John. Uh, Julio, where are you landing? Uh, it was four stars. The first time I watched it, and then the rewatch bumped it up to four and a half, because that that keys Neff relationship is really that's that's where the money is, and uh, who knows it might get to five stars if I keep watching it, which I know I will. Um, I haven't even delved into the the supplements and the criterion. I wanted to just come into this conversation without having like all that other stuff weigh on me, but it's it's really good. It's I I want to show it to people. I want to. I want to tell people to watch it. And uh, I mean, on one end, I don't think the double indemnity needs me to, you know, needs your endorsement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that there are people that might watch it if I tell them to watch it. And, you know, that's, that's good enough. And it's, it's, a, it's a good solid foundation. I think that that's what we've been talking about, right? It's a good entry point for, you know, if you're not sure about older movies, or if you've even if you've had bad experiences with older movies, maybe this is one that turns you around. No, I'm not just talking about noir. I'm just talking about like in general, right? A movie from the '40s because the the acting style is different, and the, the you know the way that the movie looks is different. So it can be intimidating, and and this is something that kind of like eases you into it. Four and a half. Outstanding. Well, John, you done good. Great pick. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And now uh, looking to the future, Julio, what's on deck next? Well, we're going to close September. We started with a, a quirky band that made it to South by Southwest. Then we went back to the 40s for a murder plot. And now we're going to close September with an Indian spy thriller, I think. Uh, I don't know what Vikram is about. I watched the trailer and it just seemed action packed. <laughs> uh, if you're a patron, you've heard us talk about Indian cinema before because we have uh, mm-hmm. patron Brandon Curtis, who of course is the one that's throwing this this challenge at us. Uh, he's given us a bunch of Indian movies to to talk about uh, on our patron channel, but this is the first one we're doing on the main feed. So Vikram is fifty six percent on the tomato meter. For critic score, but the audience score is 95%. So it's one of those. <laughs> well, we'll find out here soon enough. Yeah. Just uh, put on your seatbelt, Alex. Uh, it looks like it's a three-hour-long action epic. Oof. <laughs> You're welcome. That's <laughs> that's coming up next. Let's get out of here. All right. So we're going to go ahead and move into perennial plugs, where we start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. 
Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothieser is the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, our Patreon page, our merch page. That little tomato looking at himself in the mirror, that's Hans's work. So if you like it, let him know. Reach out to him on Twitter, at Mildemonios. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. Or you can email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. Or you can check his website, mildemonios.pe, that has all his other work there. Uh, he's a novelist. He's written a whole bunch of novels, uh, fantasy, zombie novels. And he has two podcasts, Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, and Marginal, which is about economy. Hans, thank you for all your support. I already made reference to my recent visit with Joe over at latenightgrin.com. Also, Matt, confirmed shoot from the grin, was there as well. Uh, Rob, too. And uh, Devin was missing in action, but he was uh, wrapped up in college football. So, If you're into the ridiculous world of professional wrestling, latenightgrin.com will have you covered for you know, discussion and topics related to the, the current ongoings and also uh, from time to time some historical retrospectives. Uh, they continue to support us, so we, we like to do the same for them. And uh, we always like to close by giving thanks to the continued support of our social media contributors, the OG Zoe Perez and uh, our man Coriari, who's been killing it, continues to do so with our video warm-ups and QBRs. Uh, thank you both so much for the, the work you've given us and uh, continue to do so. Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime, at Contrarian Prime on Instagram, YouTube.com slash at Contrarian Prime. You know where to find us on Twitter. Not calling it X yet. I guess we're going to have to eventually cross that bridge when we get there. But uh, The work they do for us continues to help our social media game look real pretty and real presentable, more so than Julio and I could do for ourselves. So we always like to give them a special shout-out. But most of all, we want to thank you, the listening public, for tuning in to yet another episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah.